we really do seem to be living in a time of such great upheaval in our world that some writers have taken, uh, put pen to paper to begin to ask questions why. Uh, one of my favorite uh, New York Times commentators, David Brooks, wrote an article uh, recently, provocatively entitled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Listen to what he says. He says, if you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the last decade, the truest thing to say is this. We've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected and extended families, which help to protect the most vulnerable in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, which is a married couple and their children, which only give the most privileged people in society a room to maximize their talents and expand their options. Brooks goes on to talk about how this sort of, I guess you would say, atomization of, of con connected families has hurt an inner need that we all have to have a connection in our families. He says all forms of inequality are cruel, but family inequality may be the cruelest because it damages the heart. I often ask African friends who have immigrated to America what struck them when they arrived. Their answer is always a variation on a theme. It was the loneliness. Now look, David Brooks is a professing Christian, so I know where he would get an idea like that, but how is it that articles like that get the traction that they do among what you might call the secular elites out there in the culture? I think the answer to that question, at least Christianity's answer to that question, lies in a very fundamental fact of our human nature, and that is that mankind is created in the image of a God who is himself a tri-unity. The theologians tell us that he is three persons, one essence. And so man's self-knowledge is, 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 is void if he doesn't discover it in community with other people. That's the lesson. In other words, what if God's purpose in the universe was not to save a bunch of isolated individuals but was to create a body, a group of people. What if history is going to conclude not with people sort of living alone on little floating clouds with their harp and their newly formed wings, but rather with a group of people who are going to live out eternity together and that the togetherness is the point? Because what if this is encoded on your personality from the beginning? What if what has happened in 21st century America and sort of exalting the individualistic society we have has been a move away from God's purposes for his people? And we're moving in contrary to it. What if we have, as Brooks says, damaged hearts because of it? Well, we're doing a three-week series here at Christ Prez that we started last week through our central statements of mission we talked last week about what we mean when we say we want to proclaim a hope in this community. This morning, I want to talk about the second of those, which is that we want to build a home. And we talked about that being very much our vision for Oxford and Lafayette County. And what's interesting is you need look no further than Psalm 87 to get a picture of that vision. Because it's a song about what it means to be the body of Christ as we form a home. And it come, this song comes to us in three stanzas. It says, the Lord loves his people. 
The Lord loves his enemies and the Lord loves the creation. So I want to look at those three things as we dive into this psalm. Let's start, first of all, the Lord loves his people. Look, the first interpretive clue to unlock the meaning of this psalm is to realize that in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, when the word Zion is being used, it refers to the people of God as they gather for worship. Zion was this little high hill in the center part of Jerusalem where the people of God would come and gather to meet in the very presence of God. And so that word becomes synonymous with God's people as they gather. So now if you read it this way, you can feel the emotion in the psalm, can't you? Because it says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all other dwelling places. The psalm says, this place, God, this is where God loves to be more than any place else in the world among his people. Which is kind of a strange way to talk, right? Because we know from our theologians that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. How can he say that there's one place that's better to him than others? Answer, I have no earthly idea. But I want to take the psalm at face value to say that there is something that God derives, a unique pleasure that he derives that is true for what we have here in this body and is different from what we have when we are before him as individuals. It's just different. And so immediately we come to a, to a very countercultural truth, do we not? God's people are precious to him when they gather in a way that's different than when you are alone before him. And man, could something, few things will fly more in the face of not just American, American individualism, but also American Christianity at that, than that simple notion. You know, we, live, we live in a world where religion is very much of a personal issue, and you are instructed to pursue the, uh, the God of your own understanding. But, of course, who would argue that the American Christianity has been fixated on the same thing, on your individual experience, focusing on your personal relationship with Jesus or your own individual experience with the Spirit? But what I want you to hear from Psalm 87 is the Bible's preoccupation is with the people of God as they gather, that there is an unavoidable corporate dimension, if you will, to, the, to becoming a Christian, at least if you're going to look at it in the Bible's definition. In other words, there is more biblical instruction about how we are to behave with one another than there is in what goes on in your private life. Now, don't hear me saying that what goes on in your individual life is not important. That's not the case. But the Bible is always public and communal rather than private and individualized. It just is. And so here's the question. How much of your own spiritual energy do you find yourself expending working through an inward sense of piety and faith versus what it takes to learn to get along with the other people in this body. Just in terms of sheer time. How much time have we spent thinking about how to love my brother and sister in Christ rather than worried about how much I'm reading my Bible on a regular basis? Which actually is vital to God's, to God's people. But simply compare the energy that you expend on the one with the spiritual energy you expend on the other, and I'll bet you you're out of balance, like I am. But look, before you leave this principle, there's one thing you've got to grasp, because what it says there is that Yahweh set his foundation. It says he loves the gates of Zion. Glorious things are said of you. That's Yahweh saying glorious things about the people of God as they gather. 
You once again get this wonderful sense that the psalmist loves and delights in the thought that he is delighted in. You don't ever get tired of talking about that which enamors you. Which is why you've got places like one of my favorite verses in the Bible in Zephaniah 3, 17, where the writer says, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you and quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The God of the universe has a special, powerful affection for his people. Okay, now put those two together. We know that God loves it here. He loves it among his people and it's unique. And so what that means is the basis of our community together is a little bit of a, oh, wait a minute. You discovered it too? (laughs) You found out that Jesus loves messed up people just like me too? That becomes the very reason why we have powerful friendships. Like I realize someone could be asking a question this moment. Like, okay. God loves me, yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't know that? That's obvious, God loves everybody, right? Hmm. Is there a reason possibly though that that news about God's love for us in the gospel doesn't really grip me the way in which it should? Well, that brings me to my second point because the first point is the Lord loves his people but secondly, you gotta realize that the Lord loves his enemies. Look, you might have missed this as you read through the psalm the first time but did you notice that list of nations? Did you realize who those people are? Do a quick survey here. The first one they list is Rahab. Okay, Rahab is a synonym for the nation of Egypt. Okay, Israel did not have a great relationship with Egypt. That was their former captor, (laughs) uh, enslaver. And they were known as one of the most idolatrous nations of the time. Babylon? Babylon is, is a synonym for worldliness throughout the Bible. Known for its debauchery. You get places like Philistia. You remember the Philistines, the constant troubler of Israel? You got Tyre, which is the very rich and powerful city of of economic trading where where they'd become so greedy that they were known for their their, uh, covetousness. And then you got poor Cush, poverty-stricken though they were, thought to be rejected by God because of their ignorance and lack of education. These... (laughs) These are the ones that the Lord is going to say, I am going to consider these people as if they have a heritage and were born in Zion. I'm going to bring those people in. Hey, you got to feel that. Yahweh is going to fashion a people out of the very people who you are presently despising. Think about that for a second. Yahweh is fashioning a group of people that would be a little bit like me standing up here and saying this morning, You know, we'd like to welcome some of the members of Antifa who have joined us for church this morning. Or we'd like to welcome a group of white nationalists who have joined us for church this morning. You can pick whatever political persuasion you're into at this point. This would have been offensive for these people to have read this in this psalm. Okay, so let's make a couple applications. First, vertically and horizontally. Vertically. You realize what this says, that God's presence is going to show up among a people who if you are a part of his people, it means that you were his former enemy. And the way that I look and understand my own sort of social outcasts in my life is how I was before God's holiness before I met him in Christ. That there was before us an enmity that existed that prior to this announcement of God's love was a sure pronouncement of our doom. People don't realize this. 
And obviously, for so many people, I think, honestly, it's worth reflecting on. Because for many of us, our, our coming to Christ was probably really just a, a, a mild personal reformation plan. I mean, you know, it, it would probably be better if the kids were raised in church. We should go back to church. Or, man, I, I don't know. I just, I've reached my rope end. It's probably time for me to get back to church, get my act together. Just a personal reformation plan. But what God is saying is, is it may be that one of the reasons why the gospel and its announcement has so little transformational effect in you is because you're not aware of what preceded it and exactly what it was. It was my condition before God prior to. It reminds me of one of my favorite illustrations. You've heard me do this one before. Now, what if I came to you and told you that I had just paid one of your bills, but I didn't tell you which bill it was? I could have paid back the $5 that you owed to a dear friend. I also could have paid off your house note. Do you recognize, though, that the level of transformational joy that you experience in hearing my announcement that I had paid your debt is directly proportional to your understanding of the size of the debt? Make the spiritual connection, right? If I think that it was somewhat easy for God to come and deal with someone like me, what does that say about the way in which that's going to transform me when I find out that I'm forgiven? So that's the vertical point, but there's also a horizontal point that you've got to understand. If you go and look at these nations and plot them on a map around Jerusalem, you would find that it was for the north and the south and the east and the west and the far distance from Jerusalem. The psalmist, I think, is saying that he is talking about all the known world. Jerusalem is going to be the gathered people of God and they're going to go out among the, 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 the world and bring this good news. And it's so easy to mention, but it is God, it's so easy to miss. It is God's intention to bring about a worldwide global healing. Last week we talked about Ezekiel 47 and there was this river that's flowing out of the temple that transforms everything about it. Hey, we are that river. We are that river that's to be transforming the world around us to bring food to the hungry, to bring liberty to the oppressed, comfort for the imprisoned, love for the unlovely. Think about it this way. When mankind sinned back in Genesis chapter three, we experienced disintegration. Things came apart. And God is setting about history to integrate things back together under one head, even Christ. And the primary mechanism through which he will do this is by establishing micro-communities all over the world that he calls churches. That's why we talk about planting churches. We're setting up outposts for God to heal the world. Most of us, when we think about those communities, think about our families. And of course, there's something to be said about good Christian family values. But the place where that's supposed to happen is far more in this community. We've got to grasp this. It is, we are sub-Christian when we do not have a vision for a multinational, multiracial people of God as the culmination of God's work among us. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. And I realize that this summer we saw a lot of harsh realities that we had to face this summer going on all around us. My guess is that most of the privileged among us just wish that a lot of these hard conversations would just go away. 
But please hear the lesson of Psalm 87 because to the degree that we let the reunification of all things, including and especially the reunification of, that should exist between biracial Christian communities in the South, to the degree that we miss that, we are sub-Christian. Now, if you think I just made a political statement, you're wrong because there has to be room in the body of Christ for people to pursue that reconciliation in different ways. Of course we can. But the idea that it is the goal of God to create these communities is not optional. And when I'm dismissive of that, I am no longer in the flowing stream of God's history in the world which will bend toward the reunification of all things when we are finally with him in heaven. Are you in on that, is the question. Do you see that? Are you at work in that? Because yes, God loves his people, but he also loves his enemies, the people who you are presently distanced from. And I ain't talking about social distance. Thirdly and finally, we see that the Lord loves his creation to get this, you've got to look at verse 5 really carefully. Verse 5 has a Greek translation to it. You know that the, that the, the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek a few hundred years prior to Jesus in a document that we know now as the Septuagint. Okay, And if you go back to Psalm 87 and look at verse 5, the Greek word mother is inserted there at the beginning of that so that the New English Bible translates it this way. And Zion shall be called a mother in whom men of every race are born. Christians over the ages, ages have learned to call the church their mother because of verses like this. I think it's exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind in Galatians 4, 26. Do you remember there when he says, but the Jerusalem above is free, the spiritual Jerusalem, that's the church, and she is our mother. This is what would inspire early church fathers like Cyprian to say things like, you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother. But don't miss this. It is the earliest Christian's adamant insistence that you cannot call yourself a Christian without being a member, a baptized member of a church. Doesn't make you a Christian, but it's not Christian to be one without that, he's saying. And I realize we hate this. <laughs> we hate it when people say things like that because we're in, a, we're in individual experience. But my question is, is it possible that one of the reasons why our craving for spiritual experience, our longing to find meaning in the day-to-day -day boredom, our desire to sort of find help in times of trouble is being missed because I'm not looking for it in a place where Jesus said it would be found. Because Jesus said it would be found here among these people that you're sitting by right now and socially distanced from. You see the point? Where can we find God? We find God's most tangible manifestation in each other. It reminds me of a joke, and it's not a funny joke. It got not one laugh in the first service. Not one, not even a snicker. So we're going to try it again and see if you people have a better sense of humor than those 9 o'clock people. There was a guy who was standing out and heard about a flood coming to his house. And a truck drove by and said, hey, save yourself from the flood. Get on board. And he goes, nope, I'm going to trust in the Lord to save me. The waters rose, and the man climbs up on top of his roof, and a boat floats by and says, hey, climb into the boat and save yourself. And the man says, nope, I'm trusting in the Lord to save me. 
The waters rise up to his chest just before it sweeps him away. A helicopter comes over and says, hey, grab the rope and save yourself. And the man says with his dying gasp, no, I'm waiting on the Lord to save me. Well, upon his entrance at the pearly gates, he walks up to St. Peter and says, hey, did you not just see what happened? I mean, I was down there being faithful. Why didn't you save me? To which Peter said, okay, so we sent you a truck and a boat and a helicopter. Exactly what were you waiting for? Thank you for the gratuitous laughter at that end. Appreciate you pitting me in that. What's the point of the joke? We have gotten to where we think that our interaction with God is purely in the ephemeral places of my imagination. And it's not less than that. The, 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 the cathedral of soul that you go into in your prayer time is absolutely a vital way where we encounter God. But please don't get out of balance and miss that the other place where God wants to manifest himself is through each other. It's through a face that lights up when you walk into this place. It can be through a hug when we can hug again. It can be through just being in another room with other people who we know love and care for us. That's the vitality. Is it possible that my faith has not yet been connected to reality because I've not seen it in the face of people? Let me finish the psalm with this way. At that very last verse in verse 7, it says an interesting thing. It says, the psalmist says, all my springs are in you. That's how the ESV translates it. Um, that's what he's saying. All of my springs of life, all the life-refreshing goodness in my life, it comes from you. Here's my question. What is the antecedent to the pronoun you? What's it talking about? Well, the most natural reading probably says, all of my springs are in you, O God. But you realize that it reads just as naturally if you say, all of my springs are in you, O people of God, in Zion. And so maybe you'll join me when we get into heaven, when I go to the sons of Korah, after studying this psalm for years, and I look forward to asking them, hey, guys, quick question. At the end of verse 7 of your Psalm 87, you said all our springs are in you. Did you mean that all our springs were in God, or did you mean all our springs were in the people of God as they gather? And I now fully expect them to look at me and say, what's the difference? You see why? Because in that Jewish mind, heaven and earth were nowhere near as disconnected as we make them, especially when they gathered before God in his temple. Look, my point is that God has not quarantined his presence merely to an individual experience of personal comfort. He's not done that. He's called us to serve, to love, to struggle with, to be on committees, to go to family suppers. To be a part of weekly gatherings of worship. You get the point. And so in our mission here in this church, what we're saying is, is we're going to work to build this body. We're going to go through whatever it takes for me to learn how to get over my peevishness. We're going to do whatever it takes to spend equal amounts of time dealing with my brother who I'm trying to forgive as I am trying to be disciplined about my Bible reading that I'm going to devote as much energy as I can to engaging my imagination to break down walls that exist between me and my African-American Christian neighbor worshiping at this moment in Oxford and Lafayette County. It means I'm going to investigate what hospitality looks like for me and my family so that my home is not just something that's for me. 
My oldest daughter introduced me to someone named Elena Osborne, who was a young 20-something New Zealander, uh, who actually was as shocked as anyone to find that her YouTube film she had produced uh, received over 200,000 views. Uh, She had recorded uh, much of her trek from Mexico to Canada along what's known as the Pacific Crest Trail. And a compilation of her adventures were in this real beautiful and almost heartbreaking account of her journey. 137 days it took her to hike 2,700 miles. But you know when she starts to describe what it was that left an impression on her, you know what the number one thing was? It was the trail community. She did an interview with Wilderness Magazine where she says, you know, people color the trail. And without them, it's just another nature walk. Going back through it all, I was tearing up as I was making the cuts, thinking, man, I really do miss this. I miss these people. It's for that reason that she named her film from an expression that she picked up from some of the native people of New Zealand known as the Maori. Apparently, they have a proverb that reads this. What is the most important thing in the world? To which they respond, Hey Tanada, hey Tanada, hey Tanada. Which translated is, it is the people. It is the people. It is the people. C.S. Lewis would say that your neighbor is the holiest object which you will encounter today. People whom we snub, people whom we relate, who we hug, who we care for, who we refuse to forgive. It's people. And so what we want to be here in this community is that every Christian senses the depth of that proverb. And so as we say we want to build a home at Christ's prayers, we want to see God work in us to bring back what is broken among us. You interested? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you set us on a trek to do just that, to be a people that are seeing healing happen in our own hearts and in the hearts of those around us. Would you do that? Father, for we ask as we sing about being the people of God, we pray that you would bring that to us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.